Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak to all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. This episode is brought to you in part by the Entrepreneurs Organization, the world's leading entrepreneurs group. EO is a global peer-to-peer network of more than 13,000 influential business owners in 58 countries around the world. EO is a catalyst that enables entrepreneurs to learn and grow from each other. And now the EO Toronto chapter is accepting a limited amount of qualified members. For more info, visit eotoronto.ca and click apply. Today, I'm in conversation with Nadim Nathu, co-founder of The Knowledge Society, a human accelerator focused on exponential technologies like artificial intelligence, virtual reality, quantum computing as tools to solve humanity's most important problems. His ultimate goal is And the goal of the organization is to completely rethink the way young people learn and develop globally. And in this episode, we dive into a ton of interesting and relevant topics, including TKS's focus on the 13 to 17 year old cohort and how this is really the first organization of its kind building, quote unquote, learning 2.0, social media use and its effect on psychology, philosophies around thinking and doing, the definition of success, perceived risk versus actual risk and more. We also discuss exponential tech, the prospect of wireless electricity, how to network effectively, why the bar for feeling uncomfortable is at an all-time low, and so much more. This was easily one of the most intriguing and wide-ranging conversations on the podcast to date. And so with that, please enjoy this amazing conversation with the Knowledge Society's Nadim Nathu. Okay, I, I guess the easiest place to start is the Knowledge Society, TKS, a human accelerator that focuses on exponential technologies like AI, virtual reality, quantum computing to solve humanity's most important problems. And while that's amazing and interesting, that is certainly not the most unique aspect of this whole thing, right? So I'll let you describe it and who are the participants involved. The Knowledge Society was started by Naveed and myself, and you hit the nail on the head, Adam. It was conceived to help solve some of the world's most important problems. And the way I like to think about this, if you use a thought exercise, um, like if you go on the street today, right, and you ask people, uh, you know, what are the top three problems that are facing our civilization, right? Mm -hmm. They might say poverty, they might say hunger, they might say climate change. I would argue those aren't problems. Those are outcomes. 
right? People are hungry. People are poor. The climate is changing. But the problems are why are people hungry? Why are people poor? Why is the climate changing? And we see this global movement for something like climate change. But, you know, if you ask someone to go a little bit deeper, they might not be able to answer what are some of the top contributing factors toward uh, climate change besides, you know, fossil fuels. Where are those fossil fuels actually coming from? And so, you know, if you imagine a civilization where we had this like king of the world, quote unquote, or queen of the world, right? And their metric, their KPI for success was maximizing quality of life. And every week they got a report of all these different things like disease, famine, you know, mental health, like whatever. And on this report, like things are just getting worse and worse. And sometimes they're just getting a little bit better. And imagine the reaction of this person to be like, eh, I'm just going to let one of my royal subjects figure it out. Right. Mm -hmm. That would be crazy. Like if I was this person, I think most people in that position would be like, okay, let's put together a SWAT team, some really smart people to intentionally try solving some of these problems. We realized that this was a massive infrastructure problem and, and this needed to be changed because my brother and I were always focused on having large scale impact. Uh, and we believed that using technology was one of the best ways that we can do that at this point in time. And so um, we kind of left everything to, to start TKS and we focus on 13 to 17 years old because they're hungry, they're curious, they're ambitious, right? They're still kind of building their mental models and they're able to unlearn. Whereas the older you get, it's just really difficult to unlearn a lot of the stuff that we've been taught traditional, traditionally. But we believe at TKS, the only way to achieve quote unquote unconventional success is to follow an unconventional path. Like you can't expect to do the same thing as everyone else and achieve a different result. And I'm not just talking about unconventional success professionally. I'm talking about relationships. I'm talking about health. Like if you want to be super fit, you can't just, you know, go on walks every day with, with your dog, right? It's like, you got to be intentional about what you're doing. And so um, that, that's kind of the ethos and the way that we structure TKS. When you guys were conceptualizing this, you and your brother, Naveed, and for clarification purposes, uh, if listeners are unclear about that, he is your co-founder. Yeah, he's um, my co-founder brother. When you guys were scoping this out, what, what were the vehicles that 13 to 17-year-olds had access to before this existed, if there were any? So the first thing we think about is what we wish we had growing up, right? And thinking about just very anecdotally going back when we were 13, 14, 15, we grew up in Calgary, right? No historical appetite for innovation. Most of the people who I went to high school with stayed in Calgary. You know, I go back, it's like same people doing the same things. And part of that is because we didn't really have much exposure. There wasn't really something that could meaningfully, I think, change the trajectory in a very intentional way. Um, let alone that had to do with technology. Because if you think about back then, software engineering was like the next big thing, mm -hmm. right? That that was like the thing. If you got into software engineering at that time, you would probably be you know, starting a company or be an early employee at one of these top tech companies. Whereas today, we have more opportunity now than ever before. We have AI, blockchain, quantum computing, nanotech, gene editing, stem cells, like so many exponential technologies that have come out in the last 10 years um, and the infrastructure of the internet. Because when I was growing up, we didn't even have, like we had cat videos on YouTube. Khan Academy didn't exist, right? So even if we wanted to do more, it was a lot more difficult, still possible, um, but it was a lot more difficult. Whereas today, these young people have knowledge and access and connectivity at their fingertips. Um, but I don't think we're really teaching them how to be resourceful about it. And there's a lot of different ways that we could, but to answer your question um, bluntly, they, they, there's not really a lot. 
the EdTech vertical, which people probably pigeonhole this into, right? Is is this, I mean, do you consider TKS part of this whole EdTech movement, which is burgeoning, or this is something that you view as completely unique, completely different? To me, it's just Ed, right? There's not a lot of tech behind it. We're not a technology company. Of course, we use technologies and we have a digital platform and all that stuff. But really, the thing that's hitting the outcomes is the in-person curriculum, the in-person content, uh, the connectivity and the the relationships that we're building here. And so for us, I mean, we, we didn't even think about categorizing, categorizing what TKS was when we left Silicon Valley to start this. It was really about how can we completely rethink the way young people learn and develop globally? You know, we didn't know if it was going to be a digital thing or a physical thing or a for-profit, not-for-profit, whatever. We just left everything to figure it out. And so when I think about EdTech, I think about Udacity, Udemy, Khan Academy, right? Different online tutoring things. Um, But for me, one thing that was really difficult to crack that I think whoever cracks it is going to be, you know, the next billionaire, if not trillionaire, is how to really augment uh, and simulate real life relationship building. That's not something that I think we've cracked yet. Um, but I think once we do, then it opens up a whole new range of possibilities to be able to you know, offer TKS to everyone everywhere. But I think right now the in-person component is, is super, super important. Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean by real life relationship building? So, yeah. So for example, like if me and you climb a mountain, we are going to have such an awesome experience three years after that. If I never talk to you, I can come back to you and we'll probably, you know, we can reminisce about climbing this mountain and like bond over our struggle and hardship. Like it's completely different. Whereas say me and you were both climbing mountains separately and we were on FaceTime together, right? Like it's just not quite the same. We haven't been able to figure out how to augment that human connection digitally yet. And then, you know, there's people are trying to figure out fully immersive VR to, to tackle that. But I think figuring out how to tap into our other senses like smell, touch and all that stuff is still really important. Um, and I haven't really come across anything right where I found a way to build really meaningful relationships with someone digitally as much as spending time with them uh, in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting that you've targeted the 13 to 17 year old cohort, the same cohort that is obviously super active on social media and on their smartphones, et cetera. How does that dynamic play out in this context? So my personal view on a lot of the social media today is and while it definitely has its merit, and again, this is just my personal view, is that more often than not, it's a tax and it's a distraction. So it's not as much a, a value add thing um, anymore. I think it did have its time where it's solved for interconnectivity of people. But I'll give you an anecdotal example. I saw, I was at a, one of my friend's cottages uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it was a family event, and he had a 13-year-old cousin. And the 13-year-old cousin was on her phone, and she's scrolling through Instagram and I kind of just like look over my shoulder and she's like scrolling on the couch, just scrolling, 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 scrolling. And I'm probably there for like 30 seconds, just watching scroll, double taps, swipes away, opens Snapchat, watches all the stories, closes Snapchat, opens Instagram again, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And I'm like, man, this is kind of weird. Like it almost seems like she's on autopilot, right? Mm-hmm. And one of my, one of the things that we try and really you know, encompass in TKS is how to be thoughtful. One of the beliefs that I have about a lot of people in the world today is we don't spend enough time doing and we don't spend enough time thinking. So if you're not doing it, if you're not thinking, then what's left? In my view, it's just riding the wave. And I think distraction falls right in between that. You're not doing or thinking when you're just consuming, right? And so 
I think social media has turned less into an interconnectivity. Let's figure out how to try and build relationships and try and augment the thing that I was talking about before versus more towards consuming content, right? Figuring out uh, how to portray unrealistic expectations, um, showing the best versions of ourselves, which isn't necessarily authentic and accurate. And so I think a lot of people, especially young people, kind of fall into that trap. And I think part of getting out of that process is really understanding the effect that it has on you and it and it has on your brain. Because if you think about like who we are as people, right? We are a function of our biology plus experiences, more or less, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody starts off with a certain level of biology, but your experiences and the content that you put into your brain impact who you are. And so if you're looking at the screen um, on Snapchat or Instagram, and if you don't think that it's programming your brain on some level, I think that's a very, very naive thing to think right? Because that's where we're spending our time and our attention. And so the question that I would ask is, is there a better way where we can spend our time and our attention, where we can be thoughtful? And even if we are using these tools, again, how can we be thoughtful about it? I had the psychology stuff tabled for later on the podcast, but this is just a perfect segue. I got to continue with it. I'll read you this. This, There was a study published by the Journal of Abnormal Psychology, which had findings that the percentage of teens and young adults reporting mental distress, depression, and suicide has risen significantly. This is not going to be a surprise to you, by the way, I know, but has risen significantly over the past decade. Some estimates have that percentage at 50 to 60% over the past 10 years. In your view, besides the social media stuff that we're talking about, what are the other contributing factors here and how can we do a better job of curbing this? So I just want to preface this by saying I'm not an expert and I'm not pretending to be an expert, right? Um, I definitely have some thoughts on this and a lot of it is anecdotal, just studying these young people. I always thought, you know, if teachers were psychologists, man, we'd have such a good understanding of human capability and human thought process. There's so much data on young people and how they change. But I would say two things. One is there's an enormous amount of pressure by parents in the community. So forget about social media, just the pressure to achieve quote unquote success. And the interesting thing is most young people don't even know what is success. So you're like running on this track towards, you know, the dark and you hope that success is behind that. And, you know, they're telling you uh, in the day as in like parents and society and whatever and, and norms that we should be doing something. So you're kind of running blind. And then when you don't take a, a bigger leap. So if you get that 90, if you get that 95 and you don't get that 98, you know, you kind of get reprimanded or punished. I think we got to take pressure off our young people, because if you think about ambitious, curious young people, they want to get the hundred or whatever, whatever the hundred equivalent is of life, they want to do well. Um, so when they don't, it's not a result of a lack of effort or them not wanting to do it. There's tons of things that happen in life right? Maybe they had a really bad day. Maybe one of their friends said something to them. Like there's a bunch of reasons behind that, but we don't really think about that. So parental pressure expectations, number one, what was the second? So the second is actually expectations, but for in a different lens. So what is our bar for feeling uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. I think today in today's world, our bar for feeling uncomfortable is a lot lower. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people can be triggered by You know, there's almost like this outrage culture. And so I might feel that if I don't get everything that I want, um, I might feel a deep sense of neglect. Uh, And it's not actually what I'm not saying is is that the mental illness is is fake. 
I think it's real, but I think it stems from being very, very sensitive. And when something isn't going my way, I, it actually translates into this deep level of, of neglect and, and starts this kind of downward spiral. And Another explanation is that teens today are perhaps more willing to admit that they are experiencing mental health symptoms than they were oh, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago, which obviously is a positive. I'm going to read, not sure how this relates, but but there is a relation here to this, but it feels like the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, there's a quote off the TKS website that is from your brother, Naveed, which says, quote, most people work hard to be the best at being average. If you're doing the same thing as everyone else, it's likely a sign you should do something different. So how does this relate to what we're talking about? And in your view, what are the contributing factors here? Is it the current education curriculum or is it something else? Well, first, let's talk about this notion of work and effort, right? A lot of people think working hard is, is going to you know, get you to where you want to be. That's not necessarily true. Like, you know, some of the most hardest working people in the world are like taxi drivers or custodians, but they pretty much just do that um, to make ends meet every single day. Right. And they're putting in more effort than I think just just about anybody else. And so effort alone isn't going to be the thing that helps you get out of your your circumstance or get to a better one. Uh, In my view, it's effort plus intention plus the thing that you're actually spending your time working on. Um, you can spend your time starting a company, blood, sweat, and tears, and you've now generated equity or a level of wealth. Whereas you can spend all your time you know, just working, uh, but you're not generating as much wealth unless you invest or you have a piece of ownership. And so, so, so that's one piece. It's, it, so it's effort, um, but on something that can actually help get you out of that situation where you can actually experience a level of growth, right? And not just effort on the same thing every single day. Um, and the second component of Naveed's quote was about being different. And this goes back to the quote that I said at the beginning of the podcast, which is mm-hmm. the only way to achieve unconventional success is to follow an unconventional path. Like you can't expect to do the same thing as everyone else and achieve a re- different result. If you're happy, by the way, don't change anything. If you're happy, like keep doing what you're doing. And if you feel satisfied and all that stuff, then great. But I think the precondition here is that if you're not happy and if you do want to change, well, then if you want to change, you should probably do something different. One of my friends works at a bank, uh, doesn't really enjoy his life, getting significantly underpaid in his opinion, doing a lot of work, not really fulfilled. And so I asked him, I was like, what is your dream job? He was like, I would love to work for the MLSC, right? Major League Sports and Entertainment. They own the Raptors and Maple Leafs and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I go online and they're hiring. And I go on LinkedIn and a couple of our friends are working there. I was like, dude, why don't you just, this is your dream job, like your realistic dream job. Why don't you do that? Now, here's the thing with with smart people. Smart people always have quote unquote reasons, which are excuses, but to them it's reasons, right? Because they're smart. So it's like, you know, I'm about to get promoted soon or, you know, I just got to get in my hours, this and that, like whatever he was going to say. I was like, dude, do you have enough money to survive for six months? He's like, yeah. So I was like, say you quit and you spent six months relentlessly trying to pursue this job relentlessly and you fail and you run out of money, which by the way, I think he would definitely get it. But say he didn't say he ran out of money, then what would you do? And he was like, I'd probably just get a job back here. So I'm like, you're literally living your worst case scenario on purpose. How crazy is that? And I would argue most people, most people are living their worst case scenario on purpose. Whereas what I think you should do is create the best worst case scenario for yourself. And then don't do that. Do the crazy thing. Like for example, if I 
stop TKS right now. I could be living on a beach somewhere. I could start another company. Like I, I could join as a, this, this, this isn't even my worst case scenario because I wouldn't even consider it, but join as like a PM at like Facebook or Google or blah, blah, blah. Um, but, but I think the only way to do that is if you do the different thing, try and create your best worst case scenario versus if you're doing the same thing as everybody else, you're just going to have the same worst case scenario. Alluding to what you said earlier, the bar for feeling uncomfortable is so low now that I think that explains a lot in terms of the example you just highlighted about your friend at the bank. But also you asked the question I think most people don't ask to themselves, which is, um, what is the absolute worst case scenario? I would venture a guess that most people don't have clarity on that piece or simply don't ask the question. Yeah, I agree. And this goes back to being very thoughtful about things. And, and by the way, even when I do ask the question, just like I did in this scenario, and I went through the whole thing about living your worst case scenario on purpose, what do you think happened after that? Still didn't leave, yep. right? It makes, it makes logical. And so even if you get to that point, there's still something there about perceived risk. Like there is some sort of risk there that you feel like you're losing something. You don't exactly know what it is, but you feel like you're losing something. And there was an interesting quote by someone named, so his name's Vinod Khosla. He was the founder of Sun Microsystems. Uh, he's now runs Khosla Ventures, multi-billion dollar investment fund. He's, he said this quote uh, about a year ago that really resonated with me. And it was, the consequence of mitigating risk makes the prospect of success inconsequential. Mm-hmm. So I'll say that again. The consequence of mitigating risk makes the prospect of success inconsequential. So say you had your median bar and you have risk below and reward on top. Mm-hmm. Most people are trying to mitigate, 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 mitigate. So you get closer and closer to the bar on the bottom side, but then your prospect of success on the top side is so low because risk is proportional to reward. But here's the thing that I think people don't realize. And if you're listening to this, and I think it's something just very easy to capitalize on, is perceived risk is actually far greater than actual risk. Okay. Agreed. But reward is directly proportional to perceived risk. So this is life's biggest arbitrage opportunity, yep. essentially. If you're a smart person, and more often than not, you take a risk, and we won't go down the rabbit hole of the framework for taking good calculated risk, whatever. You're, if you're smart, you'll figure that out. But more often than not, if you take a risk, it will work out in your favor because you're just taking advantage of this arbitrage opportunity between perceived risk and actual risk. Uh, and I think just most people don't do that because again, going back to the point that we talked about is their level for discomfort is, you know, to, to be uncomfortable is so low. Um, and so that's what helps, you know, push the perceived risk of any particular action uh, higher than it should be. There are other factors that come to mind too. Um, culture, upbringing, validation, acceptance from your peers or your family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're all inflating that perceived risk bar. Correct? Yep. Yep. Um, Okay, I know we we went a little off the rails there, um, but super interesting. I want to come back to the Knowledge Society. What can you share on the whole application process? Okay, so uh, yes, there is an application and an interview process. uh, But what I would like to say is that we view ourselves as a human development program. Most organizations of the world, I would argue, are filtering institutions. So like YC is a filtering institution. Harvard is a filtering institution. Even companies hiring talent Uh, fresh talent are filtering institutions. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think that there's a huge opportunity. Like school is supposed to be a human development institution. Uh, I don't think it's working too, too well or or definitely suboptimal. I think life right now is the biggest 
human development institution, but it's super unstructured and serendipitous. And so um, the reason why I say this is we do have, a again, an application process, but we try and keep it as minimal as possible such that we're not just filtering, but we're bringing in people who have the potential and then using this organization as a development program and not just a filtering one. So the three things that we look for are, so we don't look at grades, we don't look at age, we don't look at socioeconomic background or any of that stuff. Um, all we care about is A, are you curious? So we don't want someone ever since who was nine years old who has wanted to be a doctor and that's all they ever wanted to be, mm-hmm. right? We want people who love learning, understand they don't know what they don't know and want to get a better understanding of the world. The second thing we look for is ambition. So thinking bigger versus smaller, uh, simple as that. Like you don't have to be thinking about solving billion dollar problems, but like, are you thinking you're out of your community or your country or whatever? And then the third is just not being lazy or strong work ethic. And if you only have two of the three, you're probably a good fit. You don't even need to have all three because I think we could train the others. So for example, say you had a strong work ethic and you were very curious, but no one just taught you you could think big or you were never in that environment. I think we could train that and we've demonstrated training that. Um, or say you're very curious and ambitious and you're the type of person at the back of the class who's just daydreaming all the time, but you're not really putting in the work because no, no one told you why it's important. Well, I think we can train that and we've demonstrated training that. And so, um, you know, really just those three cri- criteria. And then in the interview process, we spend 15, 20 minutes with the students making sure that they're doing this for the right reasons, because at the end of the day, you know, we want to figure out if they're the right fit for TKS, but also if TKS is the right fit for them. Like if you, if your goal is to be an Olympic level swimmer, don't go to basketball camp. Right. And so we just want to make sure that it's aligned. And so after that, they just join the program, spend the next uh, 10 months with us. Uh, and you see massive, massive, uh, acceleration in their development. Um, and in terms of the fees right now, it's around 600 a month. Uh, but if students can afford it and they are the right fit, they'll virtually 100% be accepted into the program, uh, which is great. How many students were accepted last year? Around 150. Uh, we have a capacity of up to 160, but again, we're not trying to fill quotas or anything like that. If we have, you know, students who, who are the right fit, then we make sure that they can participate. And this year we've gotten a lot more applications, uh, which is fantastic because it seems like a lot of people are talking about it and we've been getting a lot of attention. Um, so it's going to be a little bit more competitive this year, but uh, hopefully when we reach this threshold, we're able to provide TKS to more people and we're expanding to different cities as well, Boston, New York, Ottawa, and Vegas. And the idea here again is the reason why we're, we're expanding is we want to make sure that we have more people accelerating their potential, more people becoming activators such that they can intentionally solve these really hard problems versus keeping it like a YC model where, you know, we're only accepting like a, a small batch every single year. We don't really move out of San Francisco because for every additional dollar that they raise to grow it, um, your ROI becomes slightly less. Right. And so, uh, and, and, and that's just by fact, like they, they take it, there's only a top 10 percentile in the world. Right. So as soon as you move to the top 15 percentile, your ROI is going to get a little bit lower. Whereas for us, um, that's not really true when it comes to human potential, right? Because we're not doing a good job mining it yet. And we're not filtering just the top 10%. So that's kind of why we're taking that growth approach. The questions that one would ask if they were uh, looking for someone who is one, curious, two, ambitious, and three, has a strong work ethic. Got what it. questions so example, would you ask? Yeah. So for example, uh, for curiosity, we ask the students, like, tell us about a company that's working on a disruptive innovation. Now, keep in mind, these kids are 13, 14, 15 years old. Mm -hmm. They probably don't know. So what do they have to do? 
they got to go on Google and they got to research it. Right. And so from the answers to their questions, like if you say like Tesla or something like that, <clears throat> that's a pretty standard answer unless you go really deep into the why and they went down this rabbit hole. Great. If they said like a traditional bank or or whatever, okay, it's it's probably like a, a negative sign. But if they say something like Kitty Hawk, which is working on self-flying cars, or Rigetti, or which is a quantum computing company, or Zenesis, which is low orbit satellites trying to beam down 5G internet across the world, you can't just find like you can't just Google Rigetti because you won't even know, right? Or even finding quantum computers, it'd be very difficult. And so um, that curiosity is going to be the thing that helps you navigate and really go deep and go down these like Wikipedia, YouTube, Google rabbit holes. And, and for us, that's a good way to test that. For ambition, we ask a question of what do you want your life not to look like by the time you're 30? So it's very difficult to answer what you want by the time you're 30. But I think it's a lot easier to understand what you don't want. And then the third work ethic is literally like if you think about a 13 to 17 year old kid, it's, it's very difficult that they've actually um, or it's, it's very unlikely that they've done something where they spent a lot of time and effort on. Um, but in that scenario, so maybe they have and we go deeper into a story. But if they haven't, we kind of just scare the crap out of them in the sense that, you know, it's going to take a lot of work. And if they're still excited to do it, like excited to do it, and I'm like, yeah, I could probably make the time, um, then they're probably a good fit. And again, we're not thinking too, too hard about it because we are a human development program. And so even if you don't have one of them and we kind of miss one, we can train it. Um, but that's kind of our strategy for assessing those things. So once they're accepted in, what happens? So they're accepted into the program, uh, starts a couple months later, we give them some guidance on how they can best prepare. And then they just should expect the unexpected. Like a lot of people when they join TKS and you can ask any of my kids, like they thought this it was this like tech program, like learn about exponential technologies. Like that's probably about 20% of it, right? It's all about focusing on the knowledge, skills, mindsets, networks. And the mindsets piece is what, you know, in the first two, three months, um, really they're starting to build. They're unlearning a lot of the mindsets that they had uh, and then they're kind of relearning some of the ones that we teach about being collaborative, being resourceful, having high standards. I don't know if I said, you know, taking risks, but um, a lot of these things aren't really common narratives that they're hearing. And so like one, one thought exercise that I like to do is I used to think intelligence was the most important factor for success. Like I was working with the CEO of a multi-billion dollar Japanese country uh, company every single day while I was at McKinsey. Um, for, for one of my projects. And this guy was so smart, um, but I was assessing him based on the, the decisions that he was making. And I remember using this like mental model being like, oh, he's only like five or 10% smarter than me, but he's also like 40 years older than me. So I could definitely be the CEO of this company or whatever. Um, but that is completely the wrong way to think about it because I soon realized after that intelligence probably isn't in the top four or five uh, things or determining factors of success. I think you need um, a certain bar is table stakes. But for example, say you had a 10 out of 10 intelligence, mm -hmm. but zero out of 10 self-awareness or zero out of 10 risk profile, mm -hmm. you're probably not going to be successful. And so when they join TKS, it's really focused on those other pieces, not just the intelligence. And after they get that, then they feel super self-motivated. Uh, they, they feel a community support. They understand why what they're doing is important to really fly after these three months. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What would building the right mindset under the TKS program or framework look like? Like what, what would you guys be doing in order to build that? So we do a couple of different things. Like, again, I talked about being thoughtful is really important and to have discussions uh, around some of these ideas and around a bunch of these mindsets, I think are really important. Um, and they don't really have the opportunity to do that with a lot of people. We study some of the uh, most influential people around the world and what are their mental models and what are their routines and how do they think about things, right? We focus, so we have this thing called like a activate manifesto, which we don't really show to a lot of people, but under there, we talk about being an activator, generating a sense of purpose, self-agency, boss mentality, wisdom, uh, tenacity, adaptability, gratitude, empathy, honesty, inner harmony, like a lot of these things, just saying out loud. Like how many people have, have even just heard inner harmony and thought about what that means to them, right? Or, or, or heard about how gratitude can be used as a tool to be happier, right? And so just introducing these concepts, talking about it, studying these people, and then putting it to practice. We make sure that we spend a lot of time really digesting a lot of these pieces that we talk about at TKS. Let's continue on this for a sec. The mindset building, uh, knowledge building, skill set building, et cetera, that then takes these kids into what day-to-day? Like, are, are they interning at companies? I, I know you've partnered with Microsoft as well as CIBC and others. Um, how are these kids working with these companies or are they? Yeah, so they're, I mean, they're interning with companies like Microsoft, IBM, leading startups in the region. One of our girls is uh, interning at the X Prize in LA. She's 15 years old and, you know, her parents allowed her to move. One of our girls is interning at Sanctuary AI in Vancouver, 15 years old, you know, her parents let her kind of move there for the summer. Another one of our girls is interning with the godfather of lab-grown meat, not to be confused with like Impossible Foods or Beyond, but um, synthetic synthetic meat um, And in Amsterdam. So she's moving there. She's also 15. So there's a lot of really cool things happening globally, but as well as locally, if you think about um, the startup landscape here, virtually all of, or if not most of the well-known startups have a TKS intern. And the way that we're able to do that is a lot of these companies are choosing to hire our students over like a third or fourth year co-op student where they could get them for four months, paying our students for two months because throughout the training um, at TKS, the two things that a lot of young people don't realize is most interns won't be able to add value day one. And most interns, uh, it's not about the money, it's about the management of these interns. Like we, there's just not enough mindshare or handholding capacity that companies have when they take on interns. And so we train our young people to have a high level of autonomy. Like if you just tell them what success looks like, 
they can figure it out because they've dealt with ambiguity before and then they don't need to keep asking like what do i need to do next what do i need to do next and then the uh, second is building the tools and skills to actually be able to add value day one and what we tell these companies is you don't have to choose these kids to, to work for you just interview them that's it just interview them and if you like them bring them on and treat them just like you would a co-op student if you don't like them that's fine and to date there hasn't been one organization that i'm aware of that's interviewed a TKS participant um, that hasn't taken them on, which is pretty awesome. I think this year we have like 60 interns, uh, but that's throughout the summer. The real secret sauce is what they do until then. And it's really about, when you talk about weekly, it's about meeting really smart people, um, attending events or, or, or life experiences that are new and unique that most young people don't get. Um, but it's also just working on their project-based learning. So choosing AI, quantum, nanotech, gene editing, whatever you want. We don't prescribe them anything as long as it's an exponential technology. Go super deep into that. And yeah, it's going to be hard. Like sometimes they're going to have to be learning like PhD level calculus at like 15 years old, not even knowing what like a, a derivative is, right? And kind of having to jump to that. Um, but it's how do we help support them throughout that journey, reading research papers, and then ultimately building things. And so throughout the year, they're building all these projects, they're meeting all these people, then they start to separate themselves from a quote unquote regular high school student um, in terms of the knowledge, skills, mindsets, networks, which has allowed them to get recognized by conferences, speaking at every major conference around the world, um, not every major ones, but a lot of them like Web Summit, 70,000 people, South by Southwest, CES, Collision, even here in Canada, Elevate, we've really cracked something, uh, we think, and it's our moral responsibility to get this to as many young people as possible in a controlled way. So you can expect us over the next couple of years to see us in virtually every major city in North America and probably under the next seven years, uh, every major city around the world. This is a good segue because I want to ask you about scaling this thing globally. You're in six cities now, are you? By September of this year, we'll be in Toronto, New York, Ottawa, Boston, and Vegas. Okay, so five. Um, yep. How long did you guys take to develop your learning curriculum and how did you go about that process and how did you find people to teach or mentor or work with these kids yeah so how long it took us to develop the content that was actually the easier part we had a really good thesis on what that looked like based on what we wished we had growing up and so hmm. you know not to say that it was perfect um when we first started but we we and we've definitely iterated but it, it's just a super powered version of kind of what we had before. So it wasn't completely drastically different, which was good. And it seems like the students like it and it's working. So I think we were on track there. I think the most difficult part is your second point, finding the people to actually deliver the program. Because right now, I would say that the, the outcomes are around 60 to 70% because of the program, which means that the city director who's actually running it is influencing 30 to 40% of the outcomes. A lot of the people who are insanely smart and who have accelerated their potential and have potential to start billion dollar companies or to be CEOs or whatever, uh, are choosing TKS as a, as a career opportunity as a city director, because they're going to learn a ton, right? They're going to feel like a super powered human being. It's the best excuse to learn. Like you're getting paid to learn about all these exponential technologies and what's on the bleeding edge, um, building relationships with some of the most influential people all around the world. You're talking about education and exponential technologies and young people. That's like the perfect storm for, you know, being able to get a conversation or have a conversation with any influential person in the world. Um, and then the third, you're changing these, uh, the trajectory of these young people's lives and having impact day one. And so for me, for the people 
who it's the right fit for. It's a no brainer. Our challenge is finding these people and getting eyeballs on it. So that was our number one challenge when scaling. Um, but it's all an iterative process. How are you finding city directors outside of your own network? So we're going through other networks. So like YC, Kairos Society, um, all that stuff, you know, might use recruiters and stuff to tap into their networks, but it, but it really is a network game. Um, and then other than that, it's creating and expanding my network. So for example, I was in Ottawa last week and I feel like now I'm exposed to pretty much, you know, a lot of these influential people or former founders or whatever in the Ottawa ecosystem, which is awesome. And, and that's just like a hustling thing. In Boston, it's the same. In Vegas, it's the same. Like you just gotta, you just gotta get down there, boots on the ground, meet smart people who are hyper connectors, and then have enough energy to just meet everyone, right? And and kind of ask and push to get people to commit to introducing you to three people. I think from like a networking standpoint, this is a little bit of a digression, but um, whoever's listening to this and they want to figure out how to network after a conversation, especially if you have a conversation with someone good feel free to make the ask of like, Hey, are there three other people? Can you commit to three, introducing me to three other people who I might have an interesting conversation with it, right? Like they'd have to like the conversation first. So if they didn't, maybe don't ask that because they probably won't introduce you, but if they did and they really enjoyed you, don't be afraid to make the ask. And so that's what I've been doing and, and being able to grow my network in a short period of time. Let's stay on the scaling thing for a sec. So in terms of KPIs for a unique business like this, I mean, do you guys care? So this is structured correct me if I'm wrong, still as a for-profit business or is it not? Is it a not-for-profit? How, how did you structure it? And do you care whether or not you guys make money? Yeah, personally, the only reason I care about making money is so we can attract top talent uh, to pay them what they need so they don't have to think about money so they can work on building this thing into a world-class institution. Naveed and I don't really care about generating wealth. I mean, if you think about a lot of the mindsets that we're trying to teach these kids, like we're pretty minimalist. Um, it doesn't take a lot to make us happy. We have tools like gratitude that we can use to, you know, turn into essentially the happiest people on earth, right? Like I'm super happy all the time. Um, and, and part, and it's not because I'm in a different situation than a lot of people. It's just kind of what goes on in my head and how I view the world. And so money to me isn't, isn't that important, but it is to attract talent. Uh, when we initially started this, uh, it was just a for-profit entity because we did raise some money to build a world-class education institution, like a physical space. Um, and because if you think about the Googles of the world or like Google completely reinvented the workforce or the workplace with the Googleplex. And I see all these other companies like being cool and quirky and whatever. But before that, it was all like cubicles and stuff. Uh, but I don't think anyone's really reinvented what learning 2.0 looks like. And so that was kind of the intention uh, behind that, how we structured that. Um, but it, the project didn't end up going through and the people who gave us the money still really wanted to be involved. And so we decided to keep that arm, um, but then also create a not-for-profit arm where we can make sure that anybody who wants to join the program has accessibility to the program. So a lot of our financial aid comes from the not-for-profit arm. Um, and especially as we scale, we're going to need to connect with more partners and organizations and individuals who want to contribute. Um, but it's kind of like this two-pronged model right now. And then the other thing is we realize that a lot of our students are exceeding our expectations now in terms of starting not cute companies, like meaningful companies. Like one of our students built a device, a portable device that's small. I can't tell you exactly what it is yet. Um, but it can non-invasively measure blood glucose and cholesterol levels without penetrating the skin. Mm -hmm. It's like real-time monitoring of heart disease and diabetes. He's the first person in the world to achieve a non-invasive qualitative signal using this technology, um, according to our knowledge. 
This kid's like 18, 19 years old, just turned 19. Um, yeah, he's starting to raise money. We've known this kid for three years. And so now we can, it doesn't matter what age you are, we can now make a better and more informed decision of whether this is a good investment or not. And so we've decided to kind of build this venture fund. And this is all in a roundabout way of saying to get LPs for this venture fund, it has to be some sort of for-profit model. So at the end of the day, I want to make this very clear. Like, yes, we are a social enterprise. Um, we're not it, obviously doing this for the money. There are way better ways to make money in the world. It's really all about impact. And it's really all about how we can support these young people to continue accelerating the trajectory of where they're at and making sure that it's also super, super accessible uh, through the not-for-profit arm. Speaking of making money, you'd mentioned a few weeks back when we spoke that you and your brother have or have had early access and exposure to groundbreaking tech uh, that most young people just don't have. For example, blockchain. Can you elaborate on this? And, and what is that exposure early access? Um, what does that mean as a precursor to creating wealth? So I actually don't really like how I made money through blockchain and crypto because so I got exposed to that um, pretty early on around like, you know, 2013, 2014. Um, so which is still like very late to the party, but in terms of viewing it as like an investment mechanism, it's not like, you know, we have this big bull run that happened in the last, you know, two years. Uh, but it was really about how we could use this as a tool to solve important problems. Like I, I could understand the utility of Bitcoin of kind of being this digital gold. But for me, the really interesting part was Ethereum and smart contracts when that came out. And so ended up trying to figure out how we could use this tool um, for affordable housing and fractional ownership of assets. Now, the intent behind buying a bunch of this Ethereum wasn't uh, to just sit and wait and let it appreciate. Um, it was like, how can you actually use this thing to make stuff happen? If you if you get access to anything early on um, that it seems like it has legs and there are smart people talking about it, that's probably a good time to start thinking about it as a way to um, way to quote unquote invest in whether it's time and money or whatever versus something that the masses are already talking about it. The masses already talking about it. It's probably too late, which is kind of where we're at with uh, crypto right now. But I think still th there is a lot of room and, and that's almost like a whole other podcast. AI is another example. My brother started an enterprise security company. Um, so not super sexy to a lot of people ended up getting acquired by box and he was leading the AI and machine learning team down there. Um, Three years ago, four years ago, yeah, down in the valley, people were talking about AI. People were talking about AI for the last 10 years down in the valley. Here, like literally in the last three years, right, people have been talking about artificial intelligence. And so for him, like he didn't even know. The interesting thing is when he was building the company, he didn't even know that it was artificial intelligence, right? Like he, he was just trying to solve a problem. And what's the best way to do that? And so, and I, and I think this, the same you'll see the same theme with a lot of other people. It's not like anyone bought Bitcoin, I think. Like, I don't know anyone who did in 2009 or 2010 who was like, oh yeah, I'm going to make like millions off this thing. It was more of like, how do I hedge against financial institutions and the global debt crisis? It wasn't like, I'm going to make a hundred million dollars off this thing. Mm -hmm. And so it was really for a purpose. And so what I would encourage people to do is like, first of all, we're in this era right now where most of the technologies that I talked about, quantum computing, stem cells, gene editing, all that stuff is still early. And if there's anything after following your curiosity that you look into it and you're like, hmm, I think this, all, this has legs. I think it has purpose. I think that's really important. It has purpose, um, but not a lot of people are looking into it. 
if you're excited about it, invest time, invest money, just figure out a way to do that. Uh, and I think more often than not, it'll lead to a wealth generating opportunity. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. Um, what are some of the major tech trends that you're seeing now that you think could mature besides the ones you've just listed, um, that could mature into major industries in say five to 10 years from now that most of us aren't talking about? So we have all the ones that I listed, right? And some are at different inflection points than others. So like, for example, AI, I think in three years, there's not really going to be, maybe not three years, maybe five years, there's not going to be such a thing as AI startups. They're just going to be startups. Like everything is going to use AI, just like how we don't have internet companies anymore, right? <laughs> we just have companies. So I think that's interesting is like how you're framing some stuff. Whereas, for example, like GeneDit, like IoT is another example. Like mm. IoT isn't a complicated thing, right? It's how can you connect things to other things, right? Whether it's Bluetooth or internet or whatever. Um, but what we're not talking about is how to capitalize on now that we have really small sensors, we have better ways to connect things. Um, the IoT market is going to dramatically increase probably by like 20x in the next five years. 20x Think about everybody who's going to have like a Google Home or smartwatch or sensors in their shoes or whatever. Um, so this is something that we all know about. It's not cr a crazy concept, but I don't know a lot of people who are trying to take advantage of this new ecosystem that's going to be created, all the data that's going to be created. What's funny is that like six years ago, I don't know if you remember, there was like this whole big data thing mm -hmm. or cloud computing. Man, how quickly was that squashed? Right. Like it, there was like a big data trend and then people started to stop talking about it and they kind of, you know, got distracted by something else. These are these current technologies, right, that this new wave of technologies outside mm -hmm. of software engineering. What's more interesting for me is how can we predict what's going to be the next wave of these technologies? So we were recently filming an Amazon Prime show in Montreal mm -hmm. um, where they brought a bunch of CEOs to try and solve really hard problems in the world. And they brought in teams from you know all over. And we were like the wildcard team, the TKS team to compete with the CEOs. And our problem was how can we deliver wireless electricity to everyone anywhere? And so first of all, wireless electricity, I think is going to be a massive field, massive field um, if we crack it. And partly because if you think about there's three, almost 2 billion people in the world who don't have access to continuous electricity. And the biggest problem uh, or reason for that is because we don't have the infrastructure to get it into the homes. So we have the infrastructure, we can build the towers and whatever. And we, even if you wanted to have like a solar roof and a Tesla power wall, and do you think that's going to solve the problem? It's not because if you look at a picture of a slum, how the hell are you going to get power lines into there? Mm -hmm. Right? So we really got to crack this wireless electricity problem. Anyway, Nikola, so that was our problem and we had to solve it in three days, casual, right? Um, but there was this one thing uh, Nikola Tesla invented or was working on back in the day called the Wardenclyffe Tower. And a lot of people listening to this might know it, but it was pretty much a way to transmit um, wireless electricity through the Earth's uh, surface using longitudinal waves. So sorry if I'm getting like too technical. But anyway, we've recently discovered that there is something, this is like a year and a half ago we've discovered it, called a Zenic wave that might allow us to transmit uh, energy and electricity through the surface of the earth. And I had not known, heard of this before. I haven't, and I, I have a lot of, you know, smart friends, like super nerdy friends who are on like the cutting edge of the stuff. And I'm like, man, it turned into like, this is impossible to by the end of the three days being like, hmm, right? So that's one thing. I think nuclear fusion 
uh, if we crack, that is going to be huge. And a lot of people think that it's a pipe dream and think that it's just science fiction. But we're actually five years ahead of where we predicted we would be with Fusion. There are a lot of really interesting organizations uh, working to achieve this technology and doing it in different ways. I think so those those couple, um, I think, are going to be massively interesting to to keep our eye out for. Do you have kids? I don't, no. Okay. Well, I have 160 of them, so... I want to frame this question the right way, considering you're not a parent yet. Um, Do you hope to be a parent one day? So that's interesting. Growing up, I always thought I did. Uh, I always thought I wanted to have kids and like build them into superpowered humans. Um, To me now, like I I think about why I would want to have kids uh, because I already have this like really good sense of purpose. Like I feel it. Um, for some reason, I don't feel like this evolutionary desire to procreate as much, but I think it would be really predicated on if I met the right person. Mm-hmm. So I'd definitely be open to it, but it's not as much of a desire as I had before. But anyway, if you had, okay, hypothetically speaking, kids of your own in elementary school today, and they were in the public system and obviously far too young for TKS, how would you go about supplementing their education, given the challenges that we face today? I can't see myself just blindly putting them into a system, like even if it was the quote unquote best school. Nah, I wouldn't do that. Um, and, and you see this happening with a bunch of smart people around so the world. are you saying like, homeschool full time? No, like I'd, I'd build another school. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd go through the process. I'd hire people. I'd be very selective of who the teachers are. I'd be very selective of the type of people who I'm surrounding my kid with um, and the parents and the environments that they're in and the mindsets that they're sharing. Because I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, a lot of the pressure isn't coming from necessarily the parents. Like you, you as a parent, if you're listening to this, you might be like, yeah, I don't pressure my kids at all. You know, I let them explore, do whatever they want. Yeah. But your friend, your kid's friend's parents are probably pressuring their kid and that's translating to him or her. And regardless or not, if, if you are, it's your environment kind of seeps in. And so, yeah. I mean, like Elon Musk started at Astra, um, Chenzek, uh, the Chenzek Foundation, uh, one of their top focuses on ed- is on education. Bill and Melinda Gates, um, their whole two focuses are education and health. If anything out- falls outside of that, they're probably not interested. Um, the co-founders of WeWork built a school for their kids. And so, mm-hmm. like, if you think about why they're doing that, like, why didn't they just find the best education institution and put their kids in there that they felt like they had to make another one is because, in my view, the current system um, isn't, isn't being close to optimal. Like it might be, so I I don't like using the word broken because it's still useful for like, for example, like a broken glass can still hold water. You just, it's not ideal to drink out of the broken glass. Right. Mm. Um, so even if like the current system is like five, 10, 20% optimal, how can we make it 67, 80%? Because you got to really believe in the idea of compounding. Like if you're like, oh, for the first couple of years, it doesn't matter. And then later on, which is like completely incorrect. There's so much research that shows that the earliest years are the most important years. Um, giving them the 60, 70, 80% or to the best extent you can optimal environment and learning experience and people such that it'll compound throughout their life. So short answer is I'd, I'd probably just build my own school environment. Yeah. And I mean, you alluded to the importance of your city directors. Right. And moving the needle from, say, that 60 to 70 percent to 100 percent and them having that that impact for better or for worse. I sort of feel like that same that same analogy can be drawn with teachers and students. 
this is the interesting thing because a lot of teachers actually have really good intention, right? And and some teachers um, really care. And I think caring is important because I think a lot of teachers don't. Um, but even if you did, even if you did have the best teachers, even if you did have a 10 out of 10, the system itself is not necessarily a building for success. Like so if you had to second, teach a certain- That's the second part of the equation. Exactly. Right. And so how can you, so how can you be super intentional and thoughtful about both of these things? And I yeah. don't believe that there's an institution today that I know of, and specifically in Toronto, because I spent a lot of time looking at these institutions that have a 10 out of 10 across the board everywhere. Like, and I don't think any of them would also say that they do. Like, they're, they're definitely trying their best given the confines and how they're being measured and how they get funded, uh, both for public and private school. Right. They get fun. There's different criteria um, that are, are being used to evaluate them, which aren't necessarily aligned to the right incentives, in my opinion. But it's what they got and they got to play the cards that they're dealt. And so I think if like if we just thought about it from a first principles approach, like if aliens came down to the, to the earth and they saw all of the resources that we had, if we saw the problems in the world, like you got, you got to think about why we have education in the first place. We want to develop people to eventually add value to the world and feel happy doing it. That's it, right? Like how, how can we train people to feel good and then do something that contributes? Because if you don't, then why do you have a, a formal education institute? Like let everyone want, like that's the reason why we have it. So the aliens would come down, they'd be like, hey, here's all these problems. Here are the things that we need to build. Let's focus on this stuff, right? And I think if we took that model and we compared it to what we have today, it, it would be a stark difference, or at least in my opinion. So, When you were working at McKinsey, did you feel like you were adding value and were you happy doing it? Some, pro some projects uh, I was feel like I felt like I was adding value. Some projects I didn't feel like I was adding value. Obviously, the ones that I was happy and I felt good were the ones where I was adding value because my brother and I both had a natural and deep disposition towards impacting billions or helping others or whatever. So, but yeah, a lot of them are, are just, uh, it really depends. Like some of the projects are actually smoke and mirrors in my opinion. Some of them are really valuable and just like any organization, like companies like McKinsey or BCG, they're very, it, it really depends on the team. Like it's the team that you're working on, the client that has engaged you, the client's willingness to, to want to actually impact change or, are they just hiring? Like in a lot of instances, clients just hire consulting firms to tell them what they already know so that they can go to the executive or the board and be like, hey, they validated us. Right. And so if that's what they're hiring you for, it's like, OK, so that in, in that sense, I think the client should take responsibility. But then there's other senses where it's like, OK, we're just doing a playbook because there's a lot of pattern recognition. Um, and, you know, let's just like you're kind of like a cog in the machine, but then there are other ones that are like, oh, this company is going bankrupt. And if we don't do something about it, it's like I was working on a project on lithography machines in Japan, working with a company that was losing $350 million a year. And if they, if we didn't fix it, they essentially would have went bankrupt. And then Moore's law would have effectively stopped because there was only two companies in the world that were really dominating the space. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like that was really exciting and interesting because I like to think about it uh, and we figured it out. So I like to think about how like I almost kind of helped contribute in a meaningful way to that problem. But I don't know. Short answer is it depends. Do you feel like you had the same level of self-awareness during your time at McKinsey? No. Than you do now? Not, not at all. Um, I've always been, as I mentioned, like things compound, right? So I'd always been really thoughtful 
But when I was working, like I was just working a lot. So I didn't have much time to think like I was just in do mode. And I mentioned that you need, you need to spend enough time doing and enough time thinking. And so there was a time where I just had to take a break. I probably took like a two month break from my experience at McKinsey. And I just had to think like what I wanted, like really digest all of this experience. And I think that's what led me to get to uh, a deeper, a higher level of wisdom. Um, and what I mean by that is like, I, like if you ask anybody, do you think wisdom is good, right? Like, it, would you rather have more wisdom than less wisdom? I think most people, if not all people would say, yes, they would rather have more wisdom. Mm -hmm. Well, if you ask someone what is wisdom, they probably don't have a good definition or they'd struggle to give you one. So, which is interesting. We know we want more of it, but we don't know what it is. To me, wisdom is defined. This is just my definition. It's not from anywhere. The thoughtful implication of knowledge or slash experiences. So knowledge and experiences are classified as data. That's one. The thoughtful implication of knowledge slash experiences. So if... So the thoughtfulness is like, how can you deeply reflect? The implication is the what does this mean? Right. So taking it the next step, what was the so what? And then you have knowledge and experiences. So my time at McKinsey, I had a bunch. I was filling this knowledge and experience bucket and I didn't really get a lot of time because, you know, to be fair, I was traveling around the world, meeting some of the top CEOs, working with them, solving really hard problems. Um, but I didn't really reflect on what it meant for me and what it meant for my ambition. And so taking that break and time to think. And then shortly after I worked on a couple of different projects and then I left close to my two year mark. Um, but it was really about, again, this question of how I wanted to spend my time and what if we had 10 billion bucks in the bank? And so I think the experience was important for me um, to generate more of this knowledge and experience buckets such that I can apply my thoughtfulness and implication framework to it to hopefully one day become a lot wiser and still definitely growing. Right. And not to say that I'm even close to where I want to be, but I'm always iterating with that philosophy. I think you're on the right path. I mean, evidenced by the Knowledge Society, uh, it's an incredible venture with an incredible mission. Where can listeners go to to find more about TKS? So we really need to change our domain. <laughs> but as of now, it's www.thekcsociety.com. So the and then the letter K society.com. You can also check out our YouTube channel, uh, The Knowledge Society. We have a bunch of the videos of awesome young people showing off what they've been learning on. And a lot of these things are just touch points. And then also our Instagram, we're always posting crazy stuff like being at conferences or being on this TV show uh, last week in, in Montreal for Amazon Prime or, you know, meeting people like Jack Dorsey or Adam Silver, if any of you are basketball fans. So, um, you know, always meeting these like really awesome people. And we post most of that stuff on our Instagram. And when can people see the Prime show? That's coming out next year, July. Because so we ended up winning that show, which is awesome. So we beat out all the CEOs, we raised some money, we did all that. Um, and then they're gonna, I think, follow up with us and track our progress to actually building like a MVP of a part of this thing. So like actually just testing this Zenic Wave technology. And I'm actually excited about it. Like I want to get one of my kids. So one of my kids just got a job and I don't like using the word kids, but whatever. This is what I say internally, so it's just more comfortable for me. Um, just got a job at Rigetti which is one of the world's leading quantum computing companies at 18. This kid has an insane intellectual horsepower um, to get a job. Uh, and, and he also pretty much like pioneered QML, like quantum machine learning. Anyway, we're working on this together at the Amazon Prime show. And we were like jokingly like, man, should we just leave everything right now and start the Zenic Wave company? And we like laughed about it. But then there was like 2% of us that was serious. And we're like, hmm, maybe we... 
maybe we should do this because it actually, I think, has a lot of potential based on our research. And so, uh, you know, I'm interested to see if, if we could actually uh, test at least some of this stuff throughout the year. We can see that next July. Amazing. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for doing this. Appreciate the time. There's so much great stuff here, Nadim. So thank you so much. Sorry, Naveed couldn't join us on the podcast, but he will appreciate um, everything you've shared and so will listeners. So thanks, man. Absolutely. Thank you. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. If you like E2, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume your audio. Leave us a review. Even become an exclusive supporter of the show. Visit glow.fm slash E2 to do so. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.